racing away, Deja Young. Now her PB is 25.08. 24.45 is the Paralympic record. And it's all young. Racing clear to win it. Now second. It'll you get so lost in sport so many times and you just become associated with your sport and that's your identity. And I based my worth off of my success. Like if I wasn't successful, then my worth was nothing. Welcome back to season three of Flame Bears, keeping the fire burning. I'm your host, Jamie. In today's episode, we follow up with Deja Young from season one. Every fourth episode this season, we'll circle back with an athlete we've previously worked with to update you on her life and what we've previously discussed. So that's three new athletes, one athlete follow-up from a previous season. In season one, Deja focused on her ongoing battles with mental health, including her attempted suicide. Today, we discuss Deja's life since our last conversation in the fall of 2020, the huge relief she felt after the games, her marriage and the birth of her baby girl, Cy Ray, her very real fear of giving birth as a black woman, and postpartum depression. My name is Deja Young. I'm a U.S. Paralympic athlete. I've competed in two games and three world championships. I've competed with U.S. Para for about seven years now. I was injured at birth, so I have brachial plexus. And basically, I tore all the nerves and muscle in my arm. And so now I have limited mobility in my shoulder. And you really can't tell until I start running. And then it's been a whirlwind. I started in 2015, and here we are seven years later. <laughs> Deja, the last time we chatted was pre-pandemic, so just months before the games were actually postponed. What was that time like for you? 2019 was a great year for me. It was in the best shape of my life. 2020 hit March. I stopped training in like June of 2020. My motivation kind of dwindled. Being inside, kind of losing my schedule, it was really, really tough. And so after Tokyo was canceled, I was just like, okay, I want to do something that I enjoy because I haven't done that in so long. Track and field has been my life for so long. So I was like, I'm going to just do whatever. And whenever I go back to the center, I'll start training again. And when I got back to the training center, training was really hard because I gained weight and I got COVID as well. So I was out for an extended amount of time. So I just felt like I was starting at square one. I wasn't, but mentally I was starting at square one because I had to start all over again. I was just felt like I was so far behind and I had a lot of resentment with myself because I was like, man, I should have trained. Everyone else was training. I was so mad at myself and it just made everything 10 times harder. I Most of the time when I was training, I didn't want to be there. I was like, this is going to suck because I suck. Like that was the mentality I was having. And that's usually not my mentality at all. I'm usually so positive, so upbeat and so excited, but I was so like drained and torn down by myself that it really took effect on my training. So when I got to Tokyo, it was kind of one of those things like, okay, whatever happens, happens. I made it here. Let's get through this and then we'll see what's next kind of thing. So this was your second games and in Rio, you took home two golds. It still feels very unreal for me to have gone out, win two medals, two gold medals at that. (laughs) How were Tokyo and Rio similar or different? So Tokyo was absolutely amazing. The venues were amazing. Staff was amazing. Everything was great in that aspect. But when it came to like me personally in Rio, I was young and it felt like 
I had no pressure in Rio. But when I got to Tokyo, there was all this pressure and anxiety and having to perform well. If I don't perform well, um, all these articles are going to come out about me. It was really hard just because I just felt like, at the same time, I know every workplace has their toxic moments. And I felt like I was in such a toxic place with my workplace, which is US Para. And I just felt like I had minimal support from like teammates and like staff. So I was just feeling really tiny at the moment. And so I really just let my environment, things that I couldn't control take over in Tokyo. And that was the biggest thing that happened. Wow, thanks for sharing that Deja. So you get to Tokyo and then what happened? I was just so mentally drained that it kind of just ruined the whole trip for me. I was ready to go home. I changed my ticket to be the early, like right after I competed after 200. I was like, I want to go home. And I was relieved that it was over. It was just like, I can finally breathe now. I can take some time to really figure out like what's going on. From the outsider's perspective, I had no idea all this was going on. I was watching you on TV and you did really well. I have to keep reminding myself, I was like, you didn't just go there and just didn't compete well. Like you still were on podium and people would kill to be on podium. So it's just like, it's so hard for me to kind of like, level with myself like hey like you're a medalist you meddled at both games and so that's something some people can't do and so it's been a process for sure (laughs) the theme of this season is what happens after the games so what happened when you got home I was so relieved to be home I feel like all this pressure all that I was having on my shoulders just was lifted off it's like gone I'm like oh wow I can just do whatever I want, I can relax, I can go on vacation, I can eat whatever I want, I can just have a moment to myself to gather my thoughts and to see where I want to go from here. And then after I finally gathered my thoughts a little bit and see where I wanted to go, I finally realized, okay, I love the sport, like absolutely love it, I don't want to leave it alone. And then unfortunately, before I even had any time to think about what to do next, my father unfortunately unexpectedly passed. And so that kind of just put a damper and a stop on everything. So I didn't have time to really come down after the game. So he passed in October and I got back from the games in what, July, September or something like that. So it was really hard for me to really find time to have a letdown or find time to really think about my career because everything kind of just like stopped for a few months. It was, it was absolutely like, it was very unexpected. It was very hard to kind of figure out what to do with my career next when it was such a big part of my family, just like all of a sudden, just like gone. I'm so sorry for your loss. I also lost my dad and it's horrible. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I know what he would want. And it's funny because he would want me to still compete. He'd want me to compete until I was like 50. (laughs) So it's just, it's really funny to think about like where I am now and like my decisions on what I'm going to do next for my career and realizing like where I want to be and like what's next. Instagram, you mentioned, quote, now it's time for me to walk away. Does that mean you're retired? What does that actually mean? I needed to walk away and just focus on me and what I wanted and who I was. I felt like you get so lost in sport so many times. You just become associated with your sport and that's your identity. And I based my worth off of my success. Like if I wasn't successful, then my worth was nothing. And so it was really hard to kind of figure that out. So walking away just kind of just meant for me to just figure out and focus on myself because I haven't done it in so long. I was so busy trying to please everyone else and 
compete and I was doing it all for the wrong reasons. I lost my purpose. I thought that was the biggest thing in Tokyo. Like my purpose kind of just like disappeared for a little bit. And I'm like, was freaking out. I was like, hey, why am I here? What am I doing? I've always had a purpose and I don't know what it is anymore. And so finally like walking away and taking a year has been so amazing. You've always been really encouraging of athletes to have a plan B. Is this why you said that? So a plan B for me is huge. I will always say have a plan B, C, all the way to Z. Just because, first of all, it's really hard to get a contract. The successes I've had on the track, it, I feel like it didn't matter because I have never had a contract. I have never had sponsors. It's just been insanely hard. And unfortunately, that's the sad truth about sports sometimes, especially a woman in sport. Having a child and a family, I can't just survive off of this. I'm sitting back and thinking, okay, I'm basically doing this for fun and for free. And so I need to make sure I have a plan B. Just to pause here, Deja is a three-time Paralympic medalist. If she can't find sponsorship, imagine what it's like for those who don't podium. The struggle is real here. One of the biggest changes for Deja since we last spoke was her marriage and the birth of Cy Ray, who joined us for this part of the conversation. Oh my gosh, Deja, she's so beautiful. How old is she now? She'll be four months on the 29th. So time has definitely flown by. Tell us about your wedding with Tim and then all about this brilliant, beautiful little lady. Okay, so we got married in March of 2021. We got like a historical Airbnb in Dallas, I had like a wraparound porch. It was a, a little telephone booth in the yard and the backyard had lights in it and then it was awesome. We invited our immediate family and some of our closest friends and it was like less than 20 people. We got married at the courthouse and we had like a small reception at the Airbnb and my mom made everything by hand, all the decorations. And it was just, it was so special. And I was so happy that, cause I was gonna wait until after the games to have my wedding in October. And I'm happy I did it because my dad wouldn't have been able to be there. And so my dad was able to be there. We had our father and daughter dance and it was something I'm forever gonna cherish. And then we had an amazing, beautiful baby a year later. And her name is Sia Ray, So we have the same middle name. My dad gave me my middle name. So I was like in honor of like my dad because I found out I was pregnant four days after my dad's funeral. And so it was kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, I don't have time to really grieve because now I'm pregnant and this can really affect the pregnancy. Deja, what's caught you off guard about pregnancy and being a mom? What surprised you? Pregnancy was so hard on my body. I don't know if it was just because... I don't know what it was, but it was really tough. So Saya was 10 pounds, eight ounces. She was a very big baby when she was born. And so my body was carrying around this very large baby. And there was like a week where I couldn't walk because my sciatic nerve was completely pinched and there was nothing I could do about it. If I got hungry, I had to eat right then and right there. My back was horrible. I got like an ear infection. I got a really bad cold. Towards the end, I was just like, just get this baby out of me because I, I can't walk. Everything hurts. I can't sit, I can't lay down, I can't sleep. She's up all hours of the night kicking me. It was really hard. And so I was really happy to finally get her out of me <laughs> as fast as possible. And I know you vowed to not have a C-section. Can you tell us about this? The mortality rate for Black women in pregnancy in the United States is really high. It's extremely high. And so when I heard about C-sections and like did my reading on like giving birth, 
I was terrified just because I know a lot of providers, they don't listen to Black women. And so even Serena Williams' story was terrifying because she was literally bleeding out and they didn't even believe her. What happened to Serena Williams is not an isolated event. Here in New York City, Black mothers are 12 times more likely to die than white mothers. I was scared. And so I was thinking, okay, the main thing I wanted to do while pregnant was find a provider that I trusted and that I knew was going to take care of me to make sure that I had enough support through my family and my provider. And so that's what I found. My provider was absolutely amazing. So when I talked to her, I was just kind of like, I don't want to have a C-section because I'm scared of dying. It, straight up. And so unfortunately, I was considered high risk because they expect Saya to be about 11 pounds. And if you try to induce and have this baby vaginally, there can be complications, not just for you, but for Saya. So we made the decision to end up having a C-section that Wednesday. And it was one of the scariest moments. I remember my doctor came in, held my hand, talked to me and just like, it's gonna be okay. She said, it's gonna take 20 minutes tops. I didn't even know what to expect with that. And it was definitely really hard on the body. I mean, you, they cut through at seven, six, seven layers of skin and muscle and tissue and nerves. And so I ended up being 10 pounds, eight ounces. So I cannot imagine <laughs> giving birth to that vaginally. And she is healthy as a horse. And she has really just changed our lives. She has been such a joy. I felt so ridiculous for not anticipating the fear Deja had around a C-section. And honestly, this fear wasn't something I'd ever felt or considered before as a white woman. So I sat down with someone who focuses specifically on birthing care for members of the black community. My name is Aja Clark. I am a doula. I am a public health practitioner and I work at the National Birth Equity Collaborative as a birth equity associate. And the National Birth Equity Collaborative is a transnational organization that's essentially working towards a world where Black mamas, Black birthing people, their babies, and their villages thrive. And we do that through working with organizations around the world. Um, as far as our transnational team, we do research, we do policy, we do technical assistance, we do training, we do evaluation. So trying to run the gamut of all of the solutions um, and help us kind of undo some of the harms that have been done to our community and build something new. Ms. Clark, can you help me understand the common feelings of fear around birth for women in the Black community? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, as I mentioned, I'm a doula. So oftentimes when I come into contact with Black people who are about to give birth, one of the things I'll say that they're most present to is this fear that they have around birth. And it's understandable because if you look online, as Deja mentioned, if you look on the internet, we are constantly as advocates talking about the Black maternal health crisis and trying to right the wrongs that have been done and are continuing to be done. It's justifiable and obviously understandable that Deja would feel that way. Your website states that Black women are dying at two and a half times the rate as white mothers. Why is this? When it comes to why we're kind of in this sustained and worsening crisis is Black mamas, we're finding that they're not being heard. We're finding that there is medical racism that's been baked into the system from the history that brings in the history of slavery to our present day that's not allowing our Black mamas to reach the quality of health and the quality of care that they are deserving. 
Then if we think about something that we call the social determinants of health, all of the other things that we deal with that in our lives when it comes to education, when it comes to your access to food, which obviously has a great impact on your health, your access to transportation, how are you getting to and from the doctor's appointments, your health care, your insurance, all of these different things that kind of come together and make a picture around what someone's state of health looks like. Those things also are impacting Black mamas outcomes when it comes to birthing. And you mentioned um, Black women are two to three times more likely to die of childbirth or complications than white women. So that is a statistic and we're working every day to try and remedy it. So certainly understandable for anyone to come into a birthing experience or a pregnancy with so many mixed emotions and understandable that fear would be one of them, but always have to highlight that there are organizations and people and doulas and midwives and even some OBGYNs who are working towards making sure that people have those healthy and life-affirming experiences with their childbirth. Deja, what's it like to be a mom? I've been telling my mom and my sister, I think that she was like the healing piece we needed after my dad just because She's distracted us with her cuteness and has just been so fun to watch grow and we're excited to see, continue to watch her grow. And I know my mom's excited about me moving closer back home so she can spend more time with her. Even just watching you now juggling Cyrae and frankly answer these questions is really impressive to me. When you have a baby, I feel like you grow eight different arms because there's some things I catch and do. I'm like, how did I do that? It's like, it becomes second nature so fast. And yeah, it it becomes like, she's like, she's not even in me or on me. It's just like another part of my body. (laughs) Deja, you've been very vocal about battling postpartum. If you feel comfortable, can you share about your experience? Absolutely. Just because postpartum, like no one really talks about postpartum. When you get on social media, you just see cute pictures of the babies and bonding. And I want to let people know that this isn't easy. This isn't just something that you do. I mean, obviously the reward is absolutely amazing. But when it comes to yourself, your body and your mentality goes through so much. I remember the first two weeks of being home with Saya and recovering I pretty much cried every day, all day. Like, I, and I didn't know why. I just felt so distraught and sad. And I just felt so empty in a sense. Like, I was carrying around this bean for so long and growing her. And then finally she's out and she's out in this world. And it's just like, I felt so lost. Like, I literally, at some point my husband's like, do we need to call someone? Because I don't know, like, what to do. Because when you leave the hospital... They give you like an exit course about postpartum and the signs to look for. And he's like, you're hitting every check mark. Like we need to call someone because I don't know what else to do because I'm worried about you. Like I'm I'm genuinely worried about you. And I'm like, I don't know what to do either. Like you should be happy. You have your baby home. It's healthy. You gave birth. It should be rainbows and butterflies. And it, and it wasn't. And it was really hard for me to adjust. And finally at my six week appointment, my doctor was just like, you are suffering from postpartum. Like you need, you should have called me earlier. We can get you medicated. We can get you therapy. We can get you whatever you need. But you just have to speak up. And I was sitting there. I was like, okay, I completely understand that. But I was so embarrassed and I didn't know how to reach out. And that's always my first thing to say when I talk about my mental health is reach out is the easiest part. That's what you need to do. And I found it so hard to reach out. And it was it was a scary moment for me just because it's like I didn't want to hurt Sire or myself. I just felt like 
this emptiness, this darkness enclosed on me. And I just wanted to close the blinds and lay in bed all day. It was, it was really hard. I wanted to learn more about what Deja was experiencing. So I sat down with two experts. I'm Dr. Katyun Kayani. I also go by Dr. Kat. And I'm a licensed psychologist specializing in perinatal mental health, which addresses mental health in the reproductive years. I am also in private practice all over California, online primarily meeting with women and families and folks who are dealing with pregnancy and postpartum mood disorders. And I'm the current board chair of Postpartum Support International. I also host my own podcast called Mom and Mind, and that covers all of these topics. My name's Mickey Spurlick. I'm a trauma researcher. I have a PhD in social work and also infant mental health. And I'm assistant professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. And I'm also happen to be a certified professional midwife. So I had a career as a midwife prior to becoming an academic. Dr. Spurlick, what actually is postpartum? Folks have started just saying that people have postpartum. <laughs> When in fact, that's just referring to it, the time period following birth, right? It's also referred to as the postnatal period. And, but what I think people mean is by saying that someone has postpartum is that they are experiencing mental health challenges in the postpartum period, right? So this has also been referred to as um, postpartum mood or anxiety disorders, so often called PMADs. Although my opinion is that this definition actually leaves out a significant body of research, and which is what I study, which looks at the effects of having had prior traumatic exposures and how this can lead to post-traumatic stress in pregnancy or birth or the postpartum period, what's known overall as the perinatal period. And it also has implications for parenting as well. But so I think overall, when people say they had postpartum, they mean that they had depression basically following their birth experiences. Dr. Kat, how common is the postpartum that Deja shared? Oh, yeah. So our current stats are about 15 to 20 percent of women will experience a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. That means that one or many people that you know are dealing with this. Additionally, though, women of color, and I'm not specifically speaking about black women, but just women of color in general, it's about twice the rate. As we understand it now, about 38% of women of color are experiencing a perinatal mental health condition. Deja, you've been such an outspoken advocate for mental health. What was different for you about this time from other times when you felt depressed? After everything that was going on in the world with Roe versus Wade, everything, I just felt so guilty because I was like, there's so many women out there who are fighting to have a baby. I follow so many women who are going through IVF right now and, uh, and they are fighting to have a child. And I follow women who don't want to get pregnant and are having a hard time getting birth control. And so I had the choice to say, hey, I want this baby. I should be excited. I should be happy. I shouldn't be struggling so hard. And I was so embarrassed and I was... Even my siblings, they knew something was wrong because they came and saw me two weeks after I had Saya, and they would just seem like, you just seemed like there was nothing there. Like you were just kind of like a blur. Everything was kind of a blur the first few weeks after having Saya, just because I was so depressed and so down. And so, yeah, that's one of the biggest things that made me not want to reach out was just kind of just being embarrassed. And yeah, no one talks about this part. Like it's, it's really hard to go from just someone that you're taking care of just yourself to taking care of another being and then... All your hormones are trying to go back to where they were before you were pregnant. And it was just kind of just 
I'm, it was a mess. I was a mess. And I'm okay to say that because sometimes life has to get messy to, to figure out where you want to be. I wanted to contextualize the feelings Deja shared. So we asked Dr. Kat and Dr. Spurlick to help us better understand the connection between embarrassment and postpartum. Well, how long do we have? There are many, many layers, but I'll just give the highlights here. For one, as you know, talking about this topic, women in particular are not really given enough attention to so many of the things they're going through, both physically and emotionally. And that's for sure starting to change, but in particular with pregnancy, postpartum, having children, there's an awful lot of pressure, societally and historically, that we should just be so happy and grateful and glowing, and that this should be our whole purpose in life. And while that just isn't true, because that's not true for anybody, for anything, there isn't anything else in life that has this pressure, that once you attain having a child, you've reached your peak. It's just an impossible standard. So when you put that up against this sort of like greeting card mentality that we're supposed to be so happy against the reality that a lot of people are actually having a hard time and some suffering quite a bit, then shame can enter the picture if you're feeling something different than what you're told you're supposed to feel and then additionally feeling like you have to hide that. Shame just grows in the dark. Anytime that you're experiencing something that sort of counters the dominant narrative, then, you know, shame is a, a sort of a feeling that you might expect to see. It's also extremely isolating. If you feel like, oh my gosh, I am the only one and nobody can know about this. If I tell anybody else, they're going to know, they're going to think I'm a horrible person. But in this case, worry that others might think you're a horrible mom. Why would you tell anybody? Oftentimes people don't because they feel like they're going to be shamed or shunned and that feeling becomes really internalized and makes people feel even more alone. And then the person who's experiencing it, if they feel alone, it just grows and grows without the proper support. For women of color, it's like doubled. There are other really deep historical systemic reasons for that as well. So I just want to bring that in there for folks to understand that while some people might be experiencing the shame or perinatal mental health conditions and all that comes with that, each person's individual life experiences in combination with their culture and identity might be having additional impact. Dr. Spurlick, why is it important for people to hear about Deja's experience? You know, I really commend Deja for her bravery and her openness for talking about this. You know, it's not easy to talk about depression. It's not easy to talk about suicide. And she discussed both those things really openly. And I really think that other women will be motivated to speak out and seek help as a result of her speaking out and really being so transparent about her journey. But importantly, that she's made it through to the other side. And it's, it's a real gift that she's willing to do this. Deja, is there anything else about motherhood you want to mention? I'm a stay-at-home mom right now, which I'm very grateful that I'm able to do. It's just been so fun to sit and watch her grow every day. Something's new and different every single day. She is a tiny human and has a personality. And it's been so fun to see that something that I grew inside of me become... Again, a tiny human. She has personality and 
spunk and attitude and it's just that's new okay she likes to reach for things now <laughs> so yeah it, it's been great and my marriage being married has been so much fun having it's like sleepover with my best friend every night even though some nights i just want to be by myself but it's nice to have him around knowing that he's in the house somewhere <laughs> to keep me company deja we've now worked together twice across multiple years we'll end the same way we did the first time What's the one action you want people to take after listening to your story? I want people to uh, really just think about how short life can be and also how life can treat you. Life can be super short. I know I have had dealt with two major life changes. I had given birth and I've lost a parent and I just want people to realize life is super short. I'm not saying go reach out to that person who like broke your heart <laughs> or anything. I want you to look in the mirror and just take every day and take advantage of the day. Seize the day, even if that means getting out of bed and going for a walk or doing something different in your schedule. Just because there's so many different things that I wish I would have did different with my dad. And I didn't get a chance to because I was always traveling or it's like, oh, are you coming home? I'm like, oh no, I can't, I have to work. And so kind of just taking that time to realize that has been really hard because there's so many things I missed out on, but also enlightening because now I'm taking advantage of that time with my mom and my sisters and my brothers and kind of just really taking advantage of every opportunity I get to spend with my family just because again, life is super short. Oh, and one last thing. Yeah, one more thing. If you guys wanted to know, I am not retiring and I am actually getting ready for Paris 2024. I will not be competing next year, but I will be training in hopes of making my third Paralympic team. And hopefully this cutie, my beautiful child, will be able to see me cross the finish line in Paris. Thanks for tuning into Flame Bears, keeping the fire burning. For more behind the scenes coverage, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Flame Bears. Apply to our brand new Flame Bears Fellowship. Information on our website and via social media. Resources for postpartum support via Dr. Cat are linked in our show notes. Lastly, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a positive review. Thank you to my amazing teammates, Marissa Potter and Lizzie Michael. Last but certainly not least, thank you to Dino Catano and Emma Minto for your ongoing support. We'll catch you on our next episode.